Father, we pray that you might open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Imagine with me a sad situation. The situation of of John and Jane, let's call them. After 10 years of marriage and two children, one dark January day, John's affair comes to light. He announces that he's leaving Jane, moving out of the family home, and moving in with his new partner, Jessica, let's call her. But he promises that he will be there for his two children. He won't let them suffer. They will be his priority. Jane has custody, but John has three slots where he sees them every week. So far, so good. He won't let them miss out, he promises. But soon, John takes up a new job. He starts working in the evenings. He can't do the school pickups anymore. He's gutted, but he won't let the kids down, he promises. He'll find a way. Then he and Jessica get married. He still sees the kids each week, but Jane notices that his mind seems to be elsewhere when he drops them off these days. They're still number one for him, he tells her. Soon after, Jessica falls pregnant with a tiny baby to care for. John still just about manages to see his older two most weeks, but he's cancelling more frequently now. But they still mean the world to him, he says. Nothing's changed. Eventually, John and his new family move a couple of hours away, nearer, to Jessica's parents. He sees his two children once a month, maybe. He gets them bigger presents to make up for it. You're my priority, he tells them. But I'm not sure anyone believes him any longer. It's a sad story. All too familiar and all too easy to judge, to throw the first stone at the absent dad, to assume that we would have done much better. But we all know deep down how true the saying can be, that our actions can speak louder than our words that it is by our actions that what really matters to us can be seen. That what we spend our money on, do with our time, talk about, look at, what our minds wander to when we're not thinking about anything else, can say much more about what really matters to us than what we say when the world is watching. And the question of priorities lies near the heart of Haggai, I think. Hopefully, with the kids just now, we've got a sense of where this book falls in in the big Bible storyline. Do you have a read of uh, the first few chapters of Ezra? You'll see Haggai mentioned in there, along with Zechariah. Um, We know relatively little of the personal life of the prophet Haggai or his background. But in this short book, uh, we get four oracles that God gives him, four messages for a people who were disappointed, as we saw with the children, a people whose lives back in the land had not turned out as they had hoped, a people who had given up on God and who thought God had given up on them. And I wonder whether perhaps um, we can neglect the prophets a little bit. I don't know about you, I've certainly never sat through a sermon series on Haggai. I think, I think Jonah gets a good hearing, but we don't tend to go to the minor prophets so often. 
I wonder perhaps um, whether we think that they're all about foretelling um, about either events that already happened in Jesus' first coming or events that we can't sure, be sure when they will happen at the end of the world. But the prophets are just as concerned with foretelling as they are with foretelling. They're just as concerned about speaking to a current people, about their current situation, as they are about pointing forward to what God will one day do. And so these four messages Haggai is given are deeply relevant to this people. And though they're about temples and consecration and signet rings, as we'll see in chapter 2, they're relevant for us too today. And so today, we'll take the first of these four words, takes up the whole of chapter 1, and we'll see four things as we look at it. And the first is a life in ruins. A life in ruins, from verses 2 to verses 11. After wonderfully high hopes, things had not turned out as God's people had expected, as they felt that they had been promised. They were not enjoying living and worshipping God in a glorious new temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. In fact, they were not much enjoying life in their homeland at all. Think of the expats returning home after 30 years, trying, struggling, failing to recreate the life they once had in the land of their birth. Look down at verse 6. The harvest was poor. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were cold. Their money was disappearing. Verse 11. There was a drought. Grain, wine, olive oil, livestock, everything was in short supply. Times were hard. Hunger was their lived experience. I wonder, maybe they felt a little bit like their um, ex-slave ancestors in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 15, missing the pots of meat that they had enjoyed in captivity in Egypt. Their life, as God's people, was in a mess. It was in ruins. And God's house, the temple, the building which visibly and physically represented God living with his people, the rebuilding project at the heart of their return to the land that was in ruins. The project had fallen apart over a decade ago. They had never got much beyond the foundation. It was just a heap of rubble. Think of the plots of land cleared around Euston Station in London for the now cancelled Manchester leg of the HS2 high-speed train network. This house, God says in verse 3, remains a ruin. Verse 4. My house, verse 9, remains a ruin. And like house, like land. Just as God's house is a ruin, so the land is a ruin. Interestingly, there's just one letter different uh, between the Hebrew words translated as ruin in uh, verse 4, verse 9, and the word translated as drought in verse 11. It was all a mess, God tells them. The temple, the land, their life was in ruins. What sort of a return to former glory was this? 
And so fair enough, surely, verse 2, that the people said what God said they said. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. This is hardly the time. There's a famine going on, a cost of living crisis. We're not long out of a pandemic. We have to be wise, prudent, good and faithful stewards of the limited resources God has given us in this season. This is hardly the time for a temple building project like this, they said. Their life was a mess, and they knew it. And maybe life feels like a bit of a mess to some of us this morning. We're not where we wanted to be at the start of 2024. There's ill health, difficult relationships, costs we cannot afford, questions with no clear or easy answer. The past hangs over us, the future looks bleak. And life feels like a mess. And maybe the church at large feels like a mess. Divided, distracted, diluted, gone to seed in its efforts to copy the culture, riven with battles over what we thought were straightforward biblical ethics. And here too, at Magdalen Road, everywhere we look, we see weakness, frailty, struggle, broken people limping along, sin and suffering almost seeping out of the skirting boards. Feels like a mess. We look around and see empty chairs and remember those who used to fill them. We feel overwhelmed about how much there is still to do in this building, in our community. We see ministries that are fragile, teams that seem to be shrinking, and it all feels like a bit of a mess. You're preaching to the converted, Haggai. We know what it looks like to feel disappointed, we say. Except it turns out that for these ancient Jews Haggai was speaking to, not everything was in ruins. For after reporting their words in uh, verse 2, God in verse 4 Ask them a question. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Not everything is a mess, it turns out. For God has noticed that his people are living in rather nice houses that they have built for themselves. While God's people hadn't found time to rebuild the temple, it appears that they had found time to build comfy little cottages for themselves. Everyone loves a bit of panelling. And I don't think God's pitching this to them as a look on the bright side, some things are good, count your blessings, see what you do have, kind of point. I think he's drawing their attention to their accommodation situation to show them their sin. We've seen a life in ruins. They know it. God knows it. The second thing we see is a call to wake up. Call to wake up. Also, verses 2, the whole way through to verse 11. Uh, in verse 5, God gives them an instruction. Give careful thought to your ways, he says. He says the same thing again in verse 7. Take stock and consider. Take a good hard look at your life, the message puts it. Consider your situation. Consider your actions. 
and ask why. Why the efforts you're putting into looking after yourselves seem to be failing, verse 6. Why, though you plough your energy into getting food on your plate and drink in your stomach, your tummy still rumbles and the wine never tastes that good. Take stock and consider, says God. Take a good hard look at your life. We'll skip over verses 7 and 8 for now. We'll come back to them. Um, But why are they experiencing such hardship? Well, verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. It's God who's brought this hardship on them. When they came home with arms laden with fresh fruit and veg and grain, God picked it up with the wind and blew it away. Because of my house, he says, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Take a look, says God, at the barren fields, your empty pockets, and the pile of rubble where God's temple once stood. And then take a look at your solar-panelled houses. There's a link, says God. Do you see it? Verse 10. Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought. Because they have let the temple fall to ruin, God has let their land fall to ruin. He's caused their farming efforts to fail. He's summoned his creation to act against them and rain down hardship upon his people. Why? To punish them? No. To give them a wake-up call. That they might take a good, hard look at their lives and come to their senses. For their tough circumstances, he shows them. And not a reason not to rebuild the temple, as they claimed in verse 2, but an indictment because they failed to build the temple. They have got their priorities all wrong. Just like with the absent dad, John, at the beginning, they say that God is their priority, but their actions have told a different story. And now they're experiencing God's discipline, and it hurts. Because wake-up calls tend to hurt, don't they? It's the surprise diagnosis, the tragedy that hits someone close to us, their email we weren't expecting, the social situation we make a mess of, that makes us sit up and realize what's going on and take action. And that's what God gives his people here. He gives them a wake-up call. He disciplines them. And it hurts. We um, visited um, my parents-in-law, Charlotte's family, in the summer. We were there for five days. And twice in those five days, her grandma was, was found having fallen in her house. They didn't know when, they didn't know how, they just found her confused and in pain on the floor. And the subsequent waits for hours for the ambulance to come and then for hours for her to be seen in A&E with a wake-up call the family needed that she couldn't live on her own at home any longer. Wake-up calls hurt. God's discipline can hurt. And it's a tricky subject, isn't it? God's discipline. We're not always sure quite 
what to do with it. It feels a bit heavy. And we're so keen, so rightly keen, to make clear that Jesus fully takes the punishment for our sin on the cross. No believer will ever experience punishment for their sin. Jesus deals with that in its entirety. But we then avoid the truth that God disciplines his people. He gives us wake-up calls that hurt. He allows us sometimes to suffer some of the consequences of our sin and to experience hardship. The vast majority of the times that we struggle in this life won't be God's discipline. They'll just be the fallout of living in a fallen world and nothing to do with our particular sins. Sometimes they will be. The writer of Hebrews 12 tells us. And as I've reflected on that this week, as I've reflected on how God's disciplining me in this season, I've come to see that this can be a lovely and a precious doctrine and a great reassurance when we faced hard times, counterintuitive as that may sound. Because discipline, unlike punishment, is an act of love. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Hebrews 12 verse 6 tells us. If God allows us to suffer that we might grow, then we can be sure that he loves us that we are his true and precious children. The purpose of discipline, the writer of Hebrews 12 carries on, verses 10 and 11. God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That sounds like a good harvest to have in our lives. God doesn't send hardship our way to punish us or because he's powerless to stop it. But he sends us wake-up calls that we might sit up and see our sin, let go of our idols and turn to him and grow in his grace and his love. How can we know whether it's God's discipline we're experiencing? That's a really hard question. Most of the time, we probably won't know. Often, I think God might use just a mix of some discipline, but also just the general consequences of sin. But let us pray. And ask God to search our hearts. Is there something he's showing us? Is there something he wants to let go of? Is there something he wants us to hold on to more clearly in the truths of scripture as he allows us to suffer? How is God showing us his love for us as we struggle in this season? So we've seen that their life is in ruins. We've seen that God sends them a painful wake-up call that they might take stock and consider. Thirdly, we see a command to build for God. And this is in verse 8. A command to build for God. 
Uh, we skipped over it earlier. Let's return to it now. Verse 8. In this verse, at like God's simple instructions for his people, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house. It's simple, says God. Get building. Go, get the woods, and build for God, not for yourself. To what end? I love this bit. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. Why are they to build? So that the famine will end, so they won't be hungry anymore, so they will live with God again. Yes, but God goes way bigger, so that he can take pleasure in the work of their hands and be honoured by them, so he can be happy and applauded. All about him, this temple project, it turns out. And maybe we rankle at that. Sounds a bit um, self-centered, God. A bit, a bit, look at me. Where, where's the modesty, God? But to criticize God for this is to grossly misunderstand and underestimate who he is. For God is not a creature and God is not a sinner. He is not just another mixed up, messed up human being lifting himself and pushing others down on his way to the top. He's the creator, not just a creature. He's the potter, not just a piece of clay. He's the one who holds the stars in his hands above and beyond all things. He is God. And he is good. He is all good, all perfect, all glorious. He never puts a foot wrong. He never engages in a moment of malice. The motives in his heart are as pure as pure can be. For God to seek his happiness and the applause of his creation, well, that's just good. The way it should be. Him to receive anything less would be a travesty. It hardly comes close as an illustration, but, but think with me of the Olympic athlete standing on the podium, claiming the prize, victory, a gold medal, a world record broken. Do any in the crowd say, oh dear, it's a bit self-indulgent of them to run so fast, to win like that, to let themselves be raised on a higher podium with a better medal than the others? I think they need to play it down a bit, be a bit more humble. No. We cheer, we clap, we shout for them, and we enjoy their glory. We bask in the moment with them. And so for God, this temple, which we thought was all about us, God coming to live with us, our big task to do and build it for him. Well, it turns out it's all about him. It's for his happiness, for his applause. And so we are to make his pleasure and his honour our priority, just as they are his priority. And we do so knowing that we will bask in the glow with him. His pleasure will lead to our good. We will be swept up in his glory. For the chief end of man, as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever.
Do we see it? I wonder. Do we see who he is? Do we see our lives and our worlds as he sees them? Do we see that his priorities for himself, for us, for this world, are so much better, so much right, more right than ours? Do we see how right and good it is to work for his happiness and his applause instead of our own? And if we see, will we build? Will we make our actions agree with our words? Will we get out of our comfy houses and up into the mountains to find the wood that we might build for him? That leads us to the obvious question. They knew exactly what God wanted them to do. They had a temple to build. But what about us? A few thousand years later, we don't need a temple building for Jesus is our temple. His body replaced those bricks. He was God come to live with and be glorified by his people in his physical flesh. And now he says that we are his temple. We, his spirit-filled church, are where and how he lives with his people today. We don't need a temple building. Later on in Ephesians, from what James read earlier, Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There's no command to build in those verses. God has built. He has built us. He is building us into a dwelling in which he lives. With our New Testament glasses on, we're not the builders anymore. We're the bricks being built by God. Isn't that wonderful? And yet Paul does use the language of building to refer to us later on in the letter to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 16, From Christ the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It is God who builds the church. He is the builder with the capital B. But there's a little lowercase building role for us too. And that, according to Paul, is to build each other up as we use our gifts to serve God and to love one another. That is how we build in the church that God is building. And it can be tempting to think that our main responsibility as Christians today is bricks and mortar, keeping buildings standing and running, or bums on seats, keeping people coming, or pounds and pennies, keeping bank accounts solvent, 
or programs and products keeping ministries thriving and looking good. Or we can be so focused on things that we do bear responsibility for, uh, right doctrine, faithful teaching, good discipline, ordered services, persistent prayer, that we miss this smaller, simpler, but just as profound task that God calls us to of building each other up, loving and serving each other with the gifts that God has given us. A new command I give you, Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is how the world will know that we are different, if we love one another. It's not about bricks and mortar, programs and practices, the temple. It never was. It was about the hearts of God's people. It was their hearts that he wanted. And where are our hearts more clearly seen than in what we love, in what, how, and who we serve? It would have been all too easy for God's people to get the job done, to lay brick upon brick upon brick while dreaming of upgrading their roof panelling. It could be all too easy for us to turn up at 10.30 on a Sunday morning to sing the songs, to increase our standing orders, to write down the prayer requests, but with no love for God or for each other, not using the gifts he's given us to build each other up, to grow the church, but just to serve ourselves and build treasure on earth. So let's build for his happiness and for his applause. We've seen that the people's lives are in ruins, that God gives them a painful wake-up call, and that he commands that they build for him and not themselves. Uh, finally, we see in verses 12 to 15a, the people's response to this first word of God. And it is a response of faith. A response of faith. Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people listened to Haggai's words. And verse 12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. The wake-up call worked. God's providential withholding of the rain and his divine revelation of himself through his word to Haggai did the job. God's people realized that God was speaking to them through this man, and they feared him. And then what does God do? Wonderfully, preciously, he speaks to Haggai again. The beautiful little nugget in verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. Humbled by their conviction of sin, intimidated by this building task lying ahead of them, God kindly, quietly, gently comes to them and assures them, I am with you. And he stirs up their spirits. Verse 14, he could have strengthened their arms, given wisdom to their minds, fortified their wills, rained down the resources they would need from heaven. But instead, he stirred up their spirits. 
But he knew that it was a battle of the heart. First and foremost, it always is. And so he stirred up their spirits, not just that they could, but that they might want to do the work of building for him. And the God who had, for the passage so far, always been the Lord Almighty. Verse 2, the Lord Almighty says. Verse 5, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 9, why, declares the Lord Almighty. That's God the military commander, God with the sword and the shield. Well, in verse 12, he becomes the Lord their God. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God because the Lord their God had sent Haggai. They knew this mighty God as their personal God. And in verse 14, those two names combined, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. The mighty God was the God they knew. And the mighty God is the God we know. The God who calls us to build for him, to grow his church, loving and serving each other, is the God who whispers in our ear that he is with us, that he will not leave or forsake us, that if we seek first his kingdom, he will give us everything we need. And he is the God who stirs our spirits, not only that we might be able to serve him, but that we will want to serve him, that we will long to see his happiness and his applause and not our own. He is the one who promises that we will be swept up in his glory as we celebrate the God who became a man, Jesus Christ, for all of eternity. Let's pause and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we repent of how easy we find it to work for ourselves, for the things that we want and that we long for in this life. Help us to look at you, convict us of our sin, show us what you are doing in our lives, in our church, in our world. Teach us to work for you, to seek your church, your kingdom to be built. Help us to work for your pleasure and for your honour that we might bask in it with you.